¿Estás listo para convertir tus mejores ideas en un negocio en línea exitoso? Te presentamos Shopify. Tal vez no lo sabías, pero nuestro podcast More Than Mummies es un negocio. Y lo comenzamos, por supuesto, para desahogarnos y hablar sobre la maternidad, no para convertirnos en expertas de ventas y del e-commerce. Así que sí, necesitábamos ayuda para vender nuestro merch y poner en marcha nuestra tienda. Por eso estamos tan contentas de usar Shopify. Regístrate con tan solo un dólar por mes en shopify.com barra sonoro, todo en minúsculas. Ve a shopify.com barra sonoro para llevar tu negocio al siguiente nivel. Shopify.com barra sonoro. With everyone fighting for attention, how can your business stand out and connect with customers easy get constant contact constant contacts award-winning marketing platform has helped millions of small businesses stand out stay top of mind and see big results fast constant contact makes it easy to promote your business with powerful tools like email and sms marketing social media posting and even events management with constant contact you'll reach new audiences Grow your customer list and communicate more effectively to sell more, raise more, and fast-track growth. Don't know much about marketing? No sweat. Constant Contact's writing assistant tools and automation features help you say the right thing at the right time, every time. Plus, you can send with confidence, knowing your emails are actually reaching your customers thanks to Constant Contact's best-in-class 97% deliverability rate. I'm a small business owner and I believe that this is a great tool for other small business owners. In small businesses, you need to create a team. And if you're starting by yourself, Constant Contact can be the team that you need. Tackle any challenge with Constant Contact's expert live customer support. Plus, everything's backed by the 30-day money-back guarantee. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to constantcontact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. Constantcontact.com. The draw was the place itself. The tragedy, the drama, the story, the diaries of Scott. The eternal silence of the great white desert. It was my first proper expedition. Cloudy columns of snowdrift advancing from the south. The place itself has a fascination for me. Pale yellow wraiths heralding the coming storm. There is no edge, there are no lies, because it wants you dead. Welcome to the Global Goals Cast, the podcast that explores if we can change the world. This episode is the first in our green mini series that we're airing from Water Day to Earth Day to Ocean Day. The whole mini series is about Robert and Barney Swan, father and son. I really wish I had a penny for every time I've heard you say that. <laughs> I have some pennies for you. Today we're focusing on Water Day, and you might be wondering how this connects. Well, approximately 61% of all fresh water on the Earth is held in Antarctica. We're talking about the swans because their story mostly takes place in Antarctica and helps us illustrate how climate change could affect us all. The melting ice in Antarctica is a symptom of global warming, which impacts sea levels around the world. This series is about Robert's drive to walk to both the North and the South Poles. It's about how he battled depression and financial ruin as a result of his polar obsession. It's about how Robert and his son Barney achieved another first, a trek to the South Pole surviving solely on renewable energy. 
we're going to tell you about how human vulnerability reflects the Earth's fragility. And we're going to tell you about how the global goals provide a way for us to protect the poles, the Earth's early warning system. Well, that's a lot of things in one episode. That is true, but we are ambitious. We are. We use stories to tease out the wider issues of the global goals. With these episodes, we're going to play some special music when we zoom out of Robert's story to look at some other stories associated with Antarctica and what climate change and human impact has brought. Would you like to hear the music? Yeah, I would. Well, that was nice music. Before we get to Robert Swan's trek to Antarctica with his son, Barney, we want to take you back in history. Just at the time of the origin of Robert's obsession with Antarctica. Let's go back to a time before you knew him, to a time when he was discovering what really drove him. I saw a film on Christmas Day called Scott of the Antarctic. Twelve men with three sledges, man hauling. All about a very brave British explorer who got to the South Pole uh, against huge odds, a tough journey. Can't be more than five miles now, sir. And you've got to imagine that Antarctica's twice the size of Australia and no one had ever been to the South Pole. And when Captain Scott arrived at the South Pole, they looked ahead and suddenly they saw a flag there in the middle of nowhere and realized that they'd been beaten to the South Pole by the greatest of all explorers, a gentleman from Norway called Roel Amundsen. And he'd beaten Captain Scott and his poor team to the South Pole by one month. Think of that. Yes, but under very different circumstances from those expected. It's a bitter disappointment. And then very sadly, on the way back, he and his whole team died of starvation and cold out on the ice cap. So deep down inside me, I had this feeling that maybe I could level the score. That was just a silly little thing as a kid I thought about. Even before those early explorations of Antarctica by Robert Swan's heroes, came those looking for more than adventure and glory. Captain Cook's voyage in 1773 reported vast seal populations, and that led to British and American hunters to head south. I really like how you say voyage. Okay, the polar region was considered untapped wealth. These original inhabitants of Antarctica were hunted and killed for their fur. By the early 20th century, seals were considered commercially extinct, no longer viable to catch. Yes, this is still happening all over the planet. In the story you're about to hear, commercial extinction is caused not by hunting, but possibly climate change, forcing fishermen in the Gulf of Maine to adapt. Carla Stowell of One Fish Foundation and Adam Bacchus of the Gulf of Maine Research Institute tell us more. It started in 2011 when the harvest of northern shrimp, Pandalus borealis, dropped off more than 50%. And then from 2011 to 2012, 
it dropped by more than 150%. It went from about 2,500 metric tons of northern shrimp in the northern Atlantic down to about 350 metric tons. So they immediately put a moratorium on the shrimp. Uh, So right now the Gulf of Maine is warming faster than many other places in the ocean, making it less and less hospitable for shrimp. The survival of the eggs, the juveniles, the adults, and their spawning behavior is all closely affected by temperature and shrimp prefer colder water. We use acoustic instruments, which are basically a fancy version of a fish finder that you see in many boats. We developed a survey using 10 boats spread across the coast to go out and look for shrimp to determine if they are moving further east, perhaps chasing colder water temperature. The preliminary results definitely showed us that we saw shrimp signal even further east into colder waters than you historically would expect to see shrimp. And it's not just shrimp. There are worrying signs that lobster numbers are declining. Call us Stowell again. This recent study suggests that if global warming keeps at its pace in warming up the Gulf of Maine, as it has been, which is, again, faster than 99% of the oceans on the planet, the lobster harvest will likely be dropped by as much as 60%. That will put lobstermen out of business. That will affect waterfront communities. In the world of fisheries, there's a lot of, of effort right now thinking about how do we adapt. We're, the species that we're used to seeing are potentially going down. Cod and shrimp are two examples in the Gulf of Maine. Uh, and new species are coming in. So it's all about working together to try to adapt to, to the changes. Adapting to change is a common theme on a global as well as personal level, and it is often fraught with difficulties. The conditions needed for good change require resilience and innovation, themes that are essential for the global goals to be delivered. Collis and Adams' research is ongoing, and there are still a lot of unanswered questions. One thing we do know is that the planet's average surface temperature has risen by about 2 degrees Fahrenheit since the late 19th century. That's a change largely driven by increased carbon dioxide and other human-made emissions into the atmosphere. The oceans have absorbed much of this increased heat, with the top 700 meters of ocean showing warming of 0.3 degrees Fahrenheit just since 1969. We will catch up with Collis and Adam in a future episode to find out the latest developments. Thanks to our partner, Slow Food, for their help with this story. Back to Robert Swan. That moment in front of the TV on Christmas Day, watching Scott of the Antarctic, was the beginning of a lifetime obsession. During his time at Durham University, Rob discovered a set of Scott's journals in a used bookshop. He says, this foolhardy purchase of a hardbound two-volume set, emptied his bank account. It also deepened his obsession to follow in Scott's shadow. He still wanted to be a polar explorer, but there were a few obstacles in his way. The day I left university, I realized two things. One is that I had no experience at all, so I had no credibility. So there are two things on my mind. One is that I had to find the right people and I didn't know anybody. And secondly, I'd have to raise a huge amount of money because through my research, I realized that if you wanted to go there, you'd have to buy a ship. You'd have to spend 
a year living in a hut on the edge of Antarctica and then you'd have to walk to the pole and hope like hell your ship returned to collect you. So the first thing was to get credibility and the only credible thing I could think of doing was to visit Antarctica. Uh, normally the British Antarctic Survey only takes scientists and serious mountaineers. So I applied to join the British Antarctic Survey as a box mover. I've always been quite good at moving boxes. So after a bit of a struggle, I was accepted by the British Antarctic Survey, went to Antarctica, fell in love with the place and met the people I believe were the right people that could execute the expedition to the South Pole. I remember writing them all a letter at the end of this six months period in Antarctica saying would you like to join me uh, one day I'm going to walk to the South Pole uh, and nobody replied six or seven years later I wrote to them again and all of them said yeah we'll come in 1984 Robert found support in one of the sponsors of his past heroes Shell who had fueled Scott ship 75 years earlier without Shell's support Robert admits the trip never would have happened. Sir Peter Scott, the son of Robert's hero, also became a patron in exchange for Rob naming the expedition in the footsteps of Scott. We asked Rob what kept him going through the seven years it took to raise the $7 million he needed to fund the journey. The draw was the place itself, to actually relive this historic journey to the South Pole. I had no idea what it was going to take. I had absolutely no idea how much it would hurt. I had no idea what it was going to be like. But it was the tragedy, the drama, the story, the diaries of Scott, the, the film Scott of the Antarctic, all those things to rather a naive brain were driving me forward. And as people joined us, then the thing took on a life of its own, that suddenly ships were arriving. Rob's mother named the ship that would take them to Antarctica the Southern Quest. They nearly didn't make it out of London. At a launch attended by press, broadcasters, well-wishers, and a full military band, they plowed straight into Tower Bridge. As the paper said the next day, their trip was starting out with a bang. The Southern Quest was originally a fishing trawler. It needed work, mainly done by volunteers, to strengthen the hull, fit ice-deflecting plates, and supplies to fuel the 10,000-plus-mile voyage to Antarctica via New Zealand. While this was happening, Rob's companions, Roger Mears and Gareth Wood, worked on navigation, logistics, and the materials to build a hut they'd use as a base camp. We will come back because we've taken every measure, including having our wisdom teeth out and appendix, uh, to make sure that we don't suffer the same fate as Scott did. But I'm not stupid enough to say that the Antarctic and, it, and its winds and its weather, temperatures down to minus 50, minus 60 degrees centigrade, winds up to 125 miles an hour. I'd be crazy if I said that didn't frighten me. But we feel that we've prepared sufficiently to have a cautious, cautious optimism about the expedition. That was Robert Swan in 1984. The Southern Quest left the UK in November 1984, calling into Cardiff for coal supplies. 
Rob, Roger, and Gareth joined the rest of the crew in New Zealand, and Rob used his time at sea to ground himself in the expedition. After so many months of being in what he called salesman mode, he spent weeks working below deck in the ship's engine room before he and his companions arrived at the most famous waters of the Southern Ocean, McMurdo Sound. Those birds you hear are the South Arctic skuas, widely known as the pirates of the avian world. Rob climbed into the ship's crow's nest, contemplating what he was doing in one of the most inhospitable places on the planet, and so Cape Evans, and the building that he has spent most of his life dreaming about. There was Scott's hut that I'd studied in history and that I knew every inch of it and that I had, I had it in my head. And I remember walking into Scott's hut and truly expected somebody to come around the corner and, and say, you know, well, we've been expecting you for a while, Swan. There was a real sense that I was back in this place that perhaps I'd been before in some strange way. Captain Scott and his team had built the hut in 1911. It had room for 25 men, 19 Siberian ponies, and months of supplies. It was the base for Scott's fatal trek to the South Pole and was inhabited by Scott's crew until 1913, when the Terra Nova expedition officially ended. With the failures of Scott's expedition in his mind, Robert started to fully comprehend what he'd got himself into. After seven days of loading 60 tons of supplies... Well, he did say he was good at moving boxes. He and his companions watched the Southern Quest sail off, leaving them alone in the icy wilderness. They knew they had nine months wintering over with only two hours of sunlight a day at their newly erected base and 900 miles to march before they'd see their ship again. It was frightening to be left for a year on your own with no communications with the outside world and know that at the, the end of that year you'd have to deliver a journey of 900 miles on foot with no backup at all to the South Pole and it was my first proper expedition. So it was a very, very soul-searching year there before we actually even left for the pole uh, with people who didn't really like each other very much so you had that problem too strong different characters which I was very glad I chose because I'd learned something as a kid being number seven in a family that the reason that people upset you is normally because they're right so I didn't choose my best friends. I did choose people who were very, very different than me. The ship was essential because they were wintering over before starting their march across the ice. That meant they needed shelter, a generator, fuel and supplies for nine long months of Antarctic winter. It was one of the questions that Rob was asked the most. Why did you have to winter over? Their schedule was squeezed by weather at both ends. In November, the summer made it warm enough to walk, but it wasn't warm enough to break up the ice for the ship to get to McMordo Sound until January. So they left Britain in the Northern Hemisphere in the autumn, arrived in the Southern Ocean in December, made it through the ice pack to drop off expedition members and supplies, and then got the boat heading north before the ice imprisoned it. 
They then had a nine-month wait before expedition season. That's the optimal three months when the weather is inhospitable rather than lethal. During those nine months, Roberts struck up a long-distance pen pal relationship with John Mills, the actor that played Captain Scott in the film that had inspired him nearly two decades earlier. So I wrote to John Mills saying, Dear Sir John, it's all your bloody fault that I'm stuck in a hut with four people I hate. We've been here for nine and a half months. I've got 900 miles to walk to the South Pole. I haven't seen a, a lady in a year, and it's all your bloody fault. So I got a reply, which was just a really nice photograph of John Mills at Ealing Studios with plastic snow on his face from the 1949 production of Scott of the Antarctic, saying at the bottom, Dear Rob, if you don't look like this after a while, you'll know you're going the wrong way, yours, Johnny. I love this story. This fledgling friendship with a man Robert considered to be Scott would come in handy later in his life. Here's a diary entry from Captain Scott, Arctic prose at its best. The eternal silence of the great white desert. Cloudy columns of snowdrift advancing from the south. Pale yellow wraiths heralding the coming storm, blotting out one by one the sharp cut lines of the land. I spent a hell of a lot of time living the history of Scott, feeling what it would have felt like looking at their old equipment, so once we started the journey, it became a machine where you are using minimal energy to do everything. So you pull your sledges up, you put the tent up. There is a well-oiled machine that gets better oiled as you go. Robert, Gareth and Roger left their hut on October 25th, 1985. They put on their sledge harnesses and began to pull loads double their own body weight. As they left, they passed the McMurdo-Williams airfield, used by the Hercules aircraft on their way to the South Pole, just three hours away by air. Robert wouldn't see the South Pole for another 90 days. He wrote in his book about the expedition. Early on, for me, there was only the sledge, the harness. I tried to make it my friend. I saw no other option. But how do you not grow to hate your torturer? Always it was there. The weight, the pull, the dull slog. Slide one ski forward and pull. Now slide the other ski forward and pull. Repeat ad nauseum. After 450 miles, Robert's dream shuddered. My sledge was starting to get heavier and heavier and heavier and I started to feel much weaker than I thought I should be feeling. One day, 450 miles into the journey, I stopped and I couldn't move. And Roger came back very kindly and said, Rob, don't worry, I'll pull your sledge the last 500 meters to the camp, which they'd set up waiting for me. And he put the harness on and he could hardly move the damn sledge. And he wrote in his book, at that moment I realized Robert must have had a muscle for a brain, how the hell he wasn't complaining, pulling this log through the sand. 
In the tent that night, Roger examined Rob's sledge and discovered the runners had been put on backwards, creating extra friction and requiring excess effort. Can you imagine? I can't bear to think about it. The next day, very kindly, Roger and Gareth said, hey, Rob, you just go ahead. And I went ahead, putting in the same amount of energy as I had been. And after about an hour, I looked back and I couldn't see the other guys. They were miles behind me. And on that day, I knew I had another 500 miles in me to make it to the South Pole. That was a very, very difficult time. And that time of those runners and that very hard weakening of, of me mentally and physically was something that came back to haunt me very badly on the South Pole Energy Challenge, which we've just undertaken. We will get to the South Pole Energy Challenge in episode three. It's the journey he did last year. Had the situation just been a weakness of mine, not a practical weakness, I think at that stage we might have been able to turn round, but probably not. And we'd made a decision between us as a team that if somebody could not keep going, then that person would be left to die. And the only decision that we never got round to making, which was too hard to make, was that did you leave that person food? The place itself has a fascination for me because there is no edge, there are no lies. It is entirely truthful because it wants you dead. One thing I've learned about Robert, his commitment to Antarctica is deep. Here's where he makes the first of many promises to the place he has idolized since his childhood. If I make a deal, I do it. And we were suffering, I was suffering, and I went quietly out and I said, look, to Antarctica, don't do us in, I'll look after you. I wasn't really saying, you know, I'll have a whole plan and campaign and I will devote the rest of my life to preserving you. It was more like, you know, trying to get out of jail. It was, it was just to do something to say something that hopefully Antarctica wouldn't kill us. Uh, I, I didn't realize that it would then become a lifetime's commitment. I was inspired by Scott Shackleton and Jack Cousteau to continue with that promise. But the promise came from panic the promise didn't come from some good feeling that I ought to be doing the right thing. I do wonder if he's ever regretted making that promise. So let's look at why Antarctica is so important to protect. It may feel like you're on another planet when you're standing in minus 60 degrees centigrade, but we know that we're all connected. What happens in the farthest polar region affects the most tropical of islands. Time to put on your sunglasses, Claudia. From the sub-zero temperatures of the Antarctic, we're now going to go to the warmer climes in the South Pacific, where the islands of Fiji are some of the first to experience the impact of global warming and the melting of the ice caps. This story comes to us through one of our partners, the SDG Action Campaign. 
One of the finalists of the awards that they organize is a 360 virtual reality video called Our Home, Our People, that explores climate change vulnerability and resilience in Fiji through the stories of four people. Here, producer Tom Perry tells us about the challenges that they are facing. The Pacific is really on the front lines of climate change and Pacific Islanders have done almost nothing to cause climate change and yet the Pacific is really part of the world that, that's already seeing its impacts so severely. I am back in Kandua. Catalina is, is really the main character in the film and she is from a small community called Vunu Savi Savi which is um, in the north of Vanua Levu in, in Fiji. It's one of the larger islands in Fiji and you know the significance of this community is that it's one of the first communities in Fiji where homes have already been moved because of the the significant impact of sea level rise on that community already and it's really changing some of the dynamics of how people plant their crops and what people are doing for food and for fishing as well. One of the striking things when you walk into this community is the soil is just rock hard and that's because the, the salt water has just completely swamped it, particularly during the, the king tides which happen two to three times a year and that, as the community says, it's only a few years ago that that wasn't happening. There's an enormous strength and sense of community in Fiji that, that is really tackling this issue head-on. They really are coming together to build whatever the, the necessary changes and, and developments are that are going to protect themselves from climate change. Tom's film captured their story beautifully. And even if you don't have VR glasses, you can see a web version of it all at OurHomeOurPeople.com. Okay, Claudia, time to get the fleece mittens back on. We're going back to the Antarctic. By the time the trio reached the Beardmore Glacier, they had bonded over their blisters, sores, aches, and pains. As Robert wrote in his book, Barrier Dawn, Glacier Dawn, Plateau Ahead. They walked faster, marching nine hours a day, covering over 17 miles a day. Here's Rob talking about his first sight of civilization in 90 days. We came up a... Uh a hill and we could see at the, the South Pole Station for a good 20 miles, which doesn't sound very much, but that's two days of walking. So it drove us nuts to be able to see this damn thing. It never seemed to get any bigger, but we could see it. We walked into the under eye station and everybody was clapping and we felt so proud of what we'd done you know although we were very different people we had come together and we had done what people said could not be done and I was thinking about Scott and I was thinking about the upset that Scott must have felt arriving at the South Pole to find the Norwegian flag there before we go on let's hear what Captain Scott said when he reached the bottom of the earth we marched on, found that it was a black flag tied to a sledge-bearer. Nearby, the remains of a camp. The Norwegians have forestalled us and are first at the Po. It is a terrible disappointment. We have turned our back now on the goal of our ambitions and must face our 800 miles of solid dragging 
and goodbye to most of the daydreams. Five minutes after our arrival, the base commander came out from the South Pole and said, sorry Rob, your ship just sank five minutes earlier before we arrived. And the loss of Southern Quest suddenly mixed up history, mixed up me for 32 years. It completely screwed my head. Suddenly I was Scott. He was Scott and Shackleton, another great polar hero, all bound up in one. Shackleton's ship, Endurance, was crushed beyond repair by the force of millions of tons of ice on its 1914 attempt to cross the vast South Polar continent. Robert's boat, the Southern Quest, had cracked under the same immense power of nature. His cape vessel had become another shipwreck, joining Shackleton's endurance in some of the most lethal seas in the world. So instead of reveling in the tremendous achievement, something he'd been looking forward to since he was 11, Rob stood there contemplating how he was going to get everyone home, thinking about the $1.2 million debt secured by the boat and the mess he promised he would never leave in Antarctica. I felt just as Shackleton must have felt when his ship went down and I didn't know what to do. I, I All I knew was that I'd lost a ship, I had 25 people standing on an iceberg, I had three people at the South Pole that all looked like somebody forgot to have buried us and I'd made commitments to leave Antarctica as clean and tidy as possible to Jacques Cousteau. I'd made that promise, although a bit hollow, I'd made the promise to look after Antarctica. I realized that if we did not pull something round, we would just be seen as a failure. And I don't like that word very much. It's never been part of my vocabulary, actually, until recently. Talk about a cliff edge. I can't imagine how Robert must have felt, but we won't have long to wait to find out because that's coming up in the next show. In the meantime, let's talk about water. We're looking at the swan's journey, not only because we find it really interesting and close to us, but also because it helps us shine a light on how climate change is going to impact our life. Global warming is causing the shrinking of the ice cap. Global warming is also causing the intensification of the water cycle that causes more extreme floods and droughts globally. Many dry regions, including the Mediterranean and Southern Africa, will suffer badly from reduced rainfall and increased evaporation. Scientists estimate that around 1 billion people in dry areas, that's 13% of the world, may face increasing water scarcity. So here are three important facts. Water is a right, not a privilege. 2.1 billion people do not have access to safe water today. That means that one in four cannot get safe drinking water at home when they need it. Water is a daily chore for 263 million people. That's more than the size of Brazil. It takes over 30 minutes round trip to collect water. And most of the time, this is women and girls. 
By 2025, 1.8 billion people are expected to be living in countries or regions with absolute water scarcity. And here are three actions for today. You can follow the Swan's Journey on 2041.com. Visit the UNICEF website to see what they are doing to improve water, sanitation, and hygiene in over 100 countries worldwide. You can also make a big difference yourself in your own consumption. Join our social media campaign, hashtag ICommitTo, and commit to turning off the lights, walking more, carpooling, or even better, riding a bike instead of driving. Eat the food you buy and make less of it meat. Coming up in our next show, we head back to the South Pole, where we left Robert, his ship sinking, and a team of explorers to get home. We will be hearing about what Robert did next, another chance meeting with an old hero, and a reconnection to those promises that Robert made to do everything he could to look after Antarctica. And if you want to make sure you don't miss that or any of our episodes, subscribe to us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, give us five stars and follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Global Goalscast for the latest news and developments. That was Edie Losh, and I am Claudia Romo Edelman. Thank you for being with us. This is the Global Goalscast. Thanks to Harmon, the official sound of Global Goalscast. Music in this episode was by Andrew Phillips, Angelica Garcia, Simon James, Ashish Pillowal, and Ellis. Extracts from journals, Captain Scott's last expedition, used by permission of Oxford University Press. We would also love to thank our new partners, UNICEF USA, United Nations University, Gavi, Red, Women Deliver, One Young World, Slow Food, and Apolitical for joining Global Goals Cast as we continue spreading awareness about the SDGs and sharing inspirational stories to showcase the progress towards their achievement. You can also find a full list of our amazing partners on our website, www.globalgoalscast.org. This podcast is powered by CBS News Digital. Are you ready to turn your best ideas into a thriving online business? Introducing Shopify, your no-excuses business partner. You might not realize, but our podcast, More Than Mammies, it's a business. And we started it, of course, to talk about maternity, not to become an e-commerce expert. So yeah, we needed some help selling our merch and getting our store up and running. Another sale. Shopify is a commerce platform revolutionizing millions of businesses worldwide. No matter if you are a garage entrepreneur or a big business, Shopify is the only tool you need to start and grow your business without the struggle. With Shopify single dashboard, you can manage orders, shipping, and payments from anywhere, giving you the insights you need wherever you are. Sign up for $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash sonoro or lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash sonoro to take your business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash sonoro.